Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by writer, director Christopher Borgley. We are here to discuss his new movie, Sick of Myself. Sick of Myself is a Norwegian black comedy about a couple in a competitive relationship and when one of them the boyfriend makes a breakthrough as a contemporary artist the girlfriend makes a hellbent attempt on attracting attention and sympathy by taking some meds which she knows will have an adverse effect and basically make her face swell up and she's got no breaks it just goes further and further and gets more and more disturbing throw in some kind of Ruben Oslin cringe comedy and some David Cronenberg body horror and you're kind of there I've said enough this is me and Chris in conversation just hearing your voice like slow down a hundred percent it sounded really spooky that's how i talk (laughs) yeah how's things where are you in la i'm in la yeah you moved right you you were full-time yeah i moved uh, what six years ago um yeah actually about the same time i started writing sick of myself how's the weather change for a start the weather yeah big change from norway (laughs) Yeah, that's that's like one of the main reasons for leaving Norway was just I got so depressed in the winter um, and and um, just needed to get away from from like six months of darkness and freezing temperatures. Um, so L.A. has done wonders in that department. Yeah, no more seasonal depression and things like that. Yeah. 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 I went tobogganing is it would i say to sledding in oslo where was it it was in oslo and we were staying at the hotel and the guy said you got to go to this snow sledding you go up on the train and then you have a complete right 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 pathway to go down and i don't know what i did that everyone was shooting down this one path and i veered off to go my own way and the next thing I knew, I almost came out at a motorway where I almost just shot out directly into four lanes of motorway traffic. Wow. Yeah. You you, you have to stay on the path, brother. <laughs> it was so crazy. It was like something like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or something where they're just shooting through the traffic and stuff. And I was like, you'd think this would be signposted. <laughs> we respect the snow sledding uh, in Norway. Yeah, no warning signs or anything, just straight into the... I kind of respected that. That was cool. Yeah. So what kind of teenager were you? What did you grow up watching? What movies had an impact? And what did you do for fun? Right. 
Um, I started working at a video store when I was 16 years old. Uh, my older brother got me that job. And I had a film interest going into this job, but like uh, the, the massive archive and the amount of time I started spending just diving deep into um, just film history uh, was, was so like sudden and so massive. And, and it really just, um, it kind of like hijacked me through high school. I stayed up all night watching movies. I saw like four to five movies back to back, staying up all night and then flunking almost in, in every, um, in like every grade. Um, and I think, um, I started getting fascinated by what was David Lynch and seeing how specific and strange and personal, um, his movies were. And then kind of, I guess through that understanding, the more authorship of mm -hmm. cinema that it comes from like a very strong point of view. Um, and, um, yeah, it kind of kept growing from there and into my my 20s and then you know I started trying to make my own little short films and and then step by step you know suddenly uh, after whatever 15 years of doing this uh, I'm finally making my own films and what were the big Lynch movies for you how do you rank them oh um I think like the Element was probably like the the one I caught first. Eraserhead too was like something that felt maybe the most alien to me. Mm -hmm. um, I think though, like Mulholland Drive came out when I was working at the video store, so that um, I was already kind of into him. And then a new thing dropped, and I would completely swept away. Um, I think Mulholland Drive was was even though it wasn't the first one, it was just like, I guess like, uh, confirmed. Yeah. His, um, his like art was, was like very, uh, impactful. Yeah. I, I'm team lost highway. I'm always championing yeah. lost highway. I think that's just so, so incredible. It's a good one. If, if it's a, like a battle between them, I, I don't think it makes it at the very top, but, um, I, I do really like it. And there's also this, I don't know if you read it, this very um, fun article written by David Foster Wallace, and he's visiting the set of... Yeah, when he was on set, yeah. Yeah, that's a very good companion piece, to seeing that movie and then reading that article. Yeah, there's a really cool making of as well. I don't know if you've seen that. It used to be a DVD extra. I think maybe, I hope Criterion put it on it as an extra. It would make sense. I, I haven't seen that. No, I should do that. Yeah, it's really cool. And I think he was so years ahead of the time in the kind of neo-noir of, of and the kind of L.A. noir of Lost Highway. I don't think anyone really got what he was doing and merging like classic Hollywood with putting like industrial music on it and casting like Marilyn Manson and stuff. I think it was a really crazy hybrid of things. Yeah, well, I, I also, I didn't know what he was doing and I think that, <laughs> what got me so hooked was like it was a mystery to be unraveled yeah um yeah so to me it like didn't 
you know, because I was getting into film, so it wasn't like disrupting uh, sort of uh, any kind of genre or I wasn't, you know, that familiar with with like the, what conventions he was breaking or building or anything. It was just like it was just yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's almost more a pure approach when, kind of like when I saw Blue Velvet for the first time or when I was getting into like Art House and Indian, I saw like Funny Games. And the more movies you see, you realize, God, that film's really extreme or that film's yeah, really strange or impenetrable. But when it's young, everything's just new. I th- And I think that's like how I saw Trigger movies too. So, you know, being from... Scandinavian, my father's Danish, and I think Lars von Trier was just a person who existed in my life before I was even that interested in in movies, and and just kind of took him for granted as being like an important and intelligent filmmaker. But mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, I think I saw the idiots when I was probably like sixteen or something, and that made a lot of sense to me, but. Uh, like breaking the waves was like more kind of my parents' jab. Yeah. Uh, but now, like re rewatching them now, like I I have a much better appreciation of what he was doing because it is like once you start understanding conventions and understanding kind of um, um, the architecture of cinema, then you appreciate all the kind of uh, intricate moves that he's making. Yeah, the more I think about it, the dogma movement was just absolutely incredible. Like, I, you can't really imagine a bunch of kind of world cinema auteurs now suddenly, someone like Almodovar or someone just, I'm just going to throw away all the budget and all the glamour of my movies and just grab mini DV cameras or, say, today, iPhones and just set myself these limits and parameters yeah and in that regards like there was maybe a way to really stand out if you were shooting you know kind of um uh documentary style video uh if you want to stand out now like you shoot on film so they were standing out by making it more amateurish now you stand out if you make it more professional because you know everyone has a camera and everyone we, we see these like uh amateur yeah uh, video content every day so to stand out like you kind of have to do the opposite yeah so what was your pathway into films did you go to film school i um i did not no i i did attend this like really media school for one year and dropped out because it was just it was like a i think just like you know nor the the, the education is pretty much free all over in in norway but there's uh it's not illegal to start um a private school so there was this like cash grab media school thing that started and i was dumb enough to uh throw my money at them and didn't learn anything but um i um just dropped out and then thought of like the title of director is not like a protected title like a doctor say so I just felt like I can just call myself a director and then claim that I am one. And that's kind of uh, how it started. That's a great approach. That's one of the hardest things I, I found. Even when I say I'm a film creator, I was like, this is such a lofty title that it almost took me <laughs> a few years to own it and not just almost, I don't know, 
make excuses or justify my career in life. To me, it's the, it's the like naive hubris that I could only have as like a 21 year old. Um, but, but I'm, you know, I'm happy that I did because it, it, it's it like, you know, calling myself a director at 2021, 20, um, it's still taking me this long to kind of like figure it out. Yeah. And if I had to do, if I had to do more steps, then I would be even further behind. So I'm, I'm glad that I kind of took a little shortcut. How did you start out? Were you just making shorts? How did you get attention and start? doing stuff yeah i um like that one year in the media school thing like there was uh they had a camera that you could borrow you know so i made some shorts uh with that they were like really terrible bad uh very like lynch complete lynch ripoffs with with none of the like real kind of art to it and and then like this year there was this uh, public publicly announced competition to direct a music video for uh, a pretty popular Norwegian artist. And I applied for that and then won that. So suddenly I was making my first music video too. And it was like pre-YouTube. So this music video suddenly was on TV mm-hmm. all over Norway. And I was like, wow, I'm now I'm definitely a, a real director. Yeah. Um, and and uh, kind of, yeah, just kept doing music videos, a little bit of commercials to, to make some income. Um, and did that for years. Uh, while also, as I, as I was doing more music videos, I found a way to do kind of... Um, things that felt more like uh, a short even though the task was to make a music video one of those things was a short film called whateverist which i made back in like 2012 uh with um kind of collaborating with a norwegian uh, musician todd karia todd turge who had this uh hit uh inspector norse uh and and um that like short film music video hybrid kind of got a lot of attention online and then I kind of used that as a proof of uh, my abilities or something with the Norwegian Film Institute and then started applying for writing grants. So it's been like a long road. I think my first application with the Norwegian Film Institute was probably like when I was 26 or something. And, um, and this, this film, not that it was the same film, but you know, in different for different projects, I've been trying to get them to support me. And then this, this project was like fully funded in 2021 where, and I'm now what, um, 35 or 36 when I get that. So yeah, it's been a long road. And I saw on your, your Vimeo, there was an Adidas film that was deemed too weird to be, screened yeah very very recently that was last year i um there's some friends of mine who started a brand out here called praying um and they had an adidas collaboration for a sneaker and um um, they asked if i wanted to make an ad for it and i um wrote this little kind of short film idea that turns into an ad um and um it was ultimately decided by Adidas that they weren't allowed to publish it. It was like, yeah, they said, quote, that it was too weird. I was wondering, how is it in general when you have 
a unique and strange vision i want how, how do people how, how is it when you're pitching to people and people's getting their head around your style and your voice and your dark comedy and your body horror and things like that yeah i think um if you're trying to do it in you know commercial realm and in advertising or in music video you have to convince other people to kind of accept what you're doing but i don't do that I, like i did this thing it was a couple of friends of mine like i haven't done an ad in many years before that so it's not so much about convincing people to advertise their product with my vision it's more you know kind of convincing people that uh, my movies should be made and invested mm -hmm. in uh which is a, a kind of a different task uh it, it's like in advertising um people want things to be familiar and it's almost like the more proof that you can point to of existing materials if it's in the in the shape of like a mood board or whatever it is things that look exactly like what you're going to make that's the way that they are reassured enough to make it and you know in cinema it feels like the opposite like you you, you sh you're you're kind of like pushed to try something new um and and so it's it's more that's more my speed i've had a complicated relationship with with advertising i've done you know some of it and it's uh made it possible for me to to stay alive as a director but um yeah i i don't really like it i it, it was never a goal on its own to do ads or even music videos um it's always been just a way to get to make movies i had an interesting conversation with todd field who just that's pretty much his i wouldn't say his side hustle but that's his main source of income yeah and he just says i'll just shoot the fucking car commercial i won't try and put my any of myself into it i've taken the check i'm a gun for hire and i'll just knock it out but yeah it's it's like a pragmatic and and kind of soul-sucking way of looking at it it's um th that way is respectable sort of because you're not trying to insist that there's real art in the ad yeah but it makes it less fun, of course, because you're not operating with your intuitive, creative excitement. It's purely like selling your time away and not enjoying the process. Um, but but I don't know if it's better to have this like naive optimism of of feeling that advertising, you know, fighting for a good ad has any value. Yeah. Um, so I think like if you if you can't for me, I'm just saying for my own sake, mm -hmm. like if I can stay away from it, I'll stay away from it because I don't like um, selling off my time. Um, it's um, better placed in writing my next movie mm -hmm. rather than I'm not I'm like I'm not in a position where I'm like looking for safety in my life. Like I'm not thinking about my pension uh, I want to spend as much time as possible just uh, um, creating uh, my own art. Um, so, but but I, you know, I um, I understand that people need to find a way to to make this creative life work, and ads just like happen to pay really well, and I I understand it, but I do think that um, 
the the net negative of advertising is like immense and mm-hmm. and bigger than 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 maybe like um, filmmakers are willing to kind of accept. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Mubi, a creator streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema with films from around the world. I've been a Mubi subscriber for years and I'm going to give you three of my favorites available from the Mubi UK platform. Okay, let's go. Brace yourselves. It's going to be a Lars von Trier triple build today. So number one, Nymphomaniac volumes one and two. I keep on saying this. This is Lars von Trier's greatest hits. This is everything he does so well and a hugely entertaining package. Maybe his most accessible. Two, the house that Jack built. Guys, I saw this at 10 a.m. at Christmas at a preview screening. That is too early to watch this film or any other Lars von Trier film. Don't do them at 10 a.m. and don't do them at Christmas. But fantastic film. This is Lars doing a serial killer movie. Number three, my favorite, my favorite, Melancholia. I think Kirsten Dunst is incredible in this movie. I think it's the best on-screen depiction of depression I've ever seen. And it's just stunning. It's not like anything else I've ever seen. So those are my three recommendations. And you can watch all these and more for free. Just go to movie.com slash deeper into movies for 30 days free and you can watch all these movies I've recommended and a ton more movie.com slash deeper into movies Chris Cunningham used to make um, beautiful little pieces in the ad world, I think. And Gaspar Noe's made some good stuff. But yeah, it's few and far between of it. You really feel you can see a director's vision. and. But even there, like the, to go back to David Foster Wallace, who, who talked about like the, the greater the art in advertising, the bigger the atrocity. Like the, the, wow, yeah. The, the, yeah, the more that... The, the more that advertising looks like real art or real goodwill, the more confusing it is for the general public to distinguish between the two. And it does like a huge disservice to, <laughs> to kind of like um, 
mapping out a way towards a more kind of artful and spiritual world for for all of us. <laughs> I'm being very strict there, but it, it, this is real. Like I, I do actually care about this. Uh, and it is kind of, um, it's not so easy to see all the ways that, um, that kind of like, you know, uh, um, exchanging of money for goods or services yeah. is evil. Like it could be just like, Oh, I, I want some sneakers and you know, um, how, how much, um, damage does the ad put into the world, but it's, it's like, it's very complex. It, it starts, it, you know, it, uh, can dictate what types of articles is written about in the newspaper because there is uh, an, uh, ad model, uh, funding the newspaper and they need to they, they start like uh, moving journalism and art around to um, to to feed some sort of capitalistic uh, economic structure uh, and I think like back to sick of myself um, the fact that it's like funded through art grants and um and film funds around Europe means that it's like a piece of art that doesn't exist inside of capitalism. It's not incentivized by capitalism and it's not necessarily it needs to make its money back. In that way, I look at a public park um, that, uh, you know, we're lucky to live in mostly societies that deem public parks as a, um, a kind of almost like a human right that we have parks. All you're supposed to do there is go and like, you know, feel nature or feel like um, you're, you're like refill your soul a little bit, get, mm -hmm. get like a little time off. Uh, and it's not supposed to make money. And for like um, a person who works with lands, land, like an, a landscape architect or something, his job can feel like the exact same doing, uh, you know, creating a public park as it would be like, creating the little park around uh, a new mall or mm -hmm. a McDonald's. But uh, the actual kind of reason for his work shifts tremendously. It's very different. And I'm not trying to put anyone down who's doing commercials. I've been doing a lot of it and I, I've been confused exactly what where I should set my limits. But it's like when we are incentivized by money to create art it corrupts the very like nature of the art itself and i think a lot of people do find some sort of enough of artistic expression in art uh that they don't see that all they're doing is like they're not hunting real animals they're fetching a ball and fetching a ball for someone else it's like the proxy of actually creating something uh and it actually has like mostly a net negative on the world so I may be misquoting you. You said, correct me if I'm wrong. You said you've had an idea or a vision in your head for a long time of young affluent Norwegians with disease. Is that correct? Or yeah. So yeah, this, um, this image of something like that, like a, a blonde privileged, uh, um, girl in Oslo who's smiling um, but with a terrific uh, skin disease. It's, it's like an image I've had in my head. I 
tried to deal with that image in a music video I did in like 2007 or 2006, like a long time ago. It felt like the image was still haunting me. And then I started writing the script in 2017, I think somewhat inspired by kind of cultural shift I saw in um, specifically in the fashion industry where like inclusivity became front and center and more important than almost the clothing themselves. Uh, and I saw suddenly how that image made sense in like a broader cultural context. And, and suddenly there was like somewhat of a story to tell there. Um, and it kind of, yeah, grew from that in, in drafts over the next few years. And body horror was also in your short film ear. Yeah. And, and Ear was, was made during the pandemic because me and Izzy Galindo, the prosthetics designer that I met in probably end of 2019 or something, we were doing uh, some kind of exploration and, and design of the skin disease that was supposed to end up in, in Sick of Myself. And that yeah. movie we thought was going to be shot in 2020. And then the pandemic hit and we were kind of just waiting around and um we just found like great chemistry creatively and uh we wanted to try the skin disease on a model he was living in new york i was in la so we thought why don't you fly over to la and we try to just see how the skin disease looks like on camera and while you're here let's also shoot a short film mm -hmm. and i have this like vague idea of um something another just image in my head which was uh actually myself spending every morning like draining a uh, swollen air of mine another like i don't know where that image fully came from but um uh, instead of trying to really find a story or something that isn't fully a story just like mm -hmm. a, a feeling um and it was great like we met each other and could collaborate on something while we were waiting for the world to kind of reopen uh and we weren't even sure if we were going to make sick of myself at that point we you know the world was looking very uh uh abstract and strange and uh uncertain and how do you pitch sick of myself is it comedy or horror it's it was so hard when i was trying to pitch the tone of your movie oh yeah i mean the thing is like i don't pitch it <laughs> uh but say it's a uh we said it was like an unromantic comedy because it was like a clever little tagline it's like a relationship comedy drama that has body horror sneaking up um I always wanted to sh to to see body horror inside of a normal universe. Um, so this was, you know, uh, it starts off as a Woody Allen-esque relationship mm -hmm. uh, drama comedy and then takes like several weird turns from there. And what were you watching for inspirational? Did you screen any films for your cast or give them any homework? Yeah, we actually, one movie that that I like made everyone watch was uh, 
are not the splash ants my sex life i haven't seen have i seen i haven't seen that it's um when is it from like 96 or something um and it's 30 somethings in paris dealing with kind of not that serious existential dramas Mm -hmm. uh what am i supposed to be in my life should i break up with my girlfriend uh i think maybe my friend knows that i'm into uh his girlfriend kind of like seinfeldian uh themes Mm -hmm. and ideas but in a three hour long extremely gorgeous movie and i thought the way that they shot youth and they're kind of like almost made up problems and took it seriously mm-hmm. uh that was like a tone and a language that i wanted for sake of myself and i think if you see them like side by side you'll kind of feel some at least like graphic similarities uh you know both shot on 35 millimeter with uh certain you know like a european language of you know, tracking shots with zoom um, and natural light, um, or at least the appearance of natural light. Everything was uh, very lit, but to look natural. Um, yeah, that was that was like the main thing I wanted people to see. Um, and then my idea also that I told all the actors was like not trying to make anything funny just make make it seem like all the characters are stuck inside of a drama that they're not even aware that this could be funny um and i think that's what makes it funny that we're shooting a drama that translates to a comedy because of their you know the way that they uh kind of set themselves up for failure and how they're struggling with these situations is way more comedic when the character seems to take them very seriously mm-hmm. yeah when i spoke to ruben osland he said that he would do take out he does a lot of takes and i was asking what his intention behind that and he was basically saying to flatten out the energy a little bit that the actors may be too aware that they're doing a comedic scene and he's like play it more normal you're not aware this is you're actually you're just experiencing this it's going to be ridiculous to the audience that you're stuck in this situation but to you this is real so the the, the more takes we do the energy goes lower and it's more realistic which makes your scene so great because the audience is just almost covering their face they're sinking into their chair with the more awkward and crazy your character goes yeah the you know the, the journey that the characters um start in this movie is like kind of absurd and i don't know if you're familiar with del close this like uh improv teacher who has this famous saying of play to the top of your intelligence uh and there's something about like not going for anything that mocks the character or, mm-hmm. or like goes for the easy kind of joke, uh, but kind of makes it seem like the character is staying true to their integrity in any moment. Uh, and I think um, 
to be able to kind of like believe um, the journey of Christina uh, or Signa, the character played by Christina. Um, she has to have hints of something that's not completely normal because most people wouldn't uh, go to the lengths that she does. But she also needed to feel real and believable and uh, that she seemed to not be written as a lesser person or a less mm -hmm. intelligent person. We weren't like, you know, we weren't um, pushing um, like a stupid person around to different traps. It was like someone actually with, you know, kind of stakes and somewhat uh, some integrity and uh, um, a real kind of life and, and like pushing her um, I, I felt like I needed to hold the audience's hand a little bit in the beginning of like uh, um, these careful steps that she takes before she like embarks on the most crazy turn. It's like the death of a thousand cuts where you don't know which cut made you bleed out. Um, that's the same idea here of like these little steps of insanity till you suddenly have crossed the line and not noticed it. And how was the casting process finding her? Because this is a hugely tall order for an actress. They, they have to nail the, yeah. the comedy, the makeup, the performance. You, there's so much going on in there. I think they're basically in almost every scene of a movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, we're going to make you hideous and have a huge amount of makeup on you as well, on top of all this. I know. it was. Uh, I remember that um first i got writing grant and then you get um development grant and i just said the only thing i want to focus on with the development is finding signa by the casting and uh and developing the prosthetic design of it because those were the two like big unknowns um and i think i did a year of auditions and um it was just like so obvious when Christina uh, showed up that the the um, character suddenly came alive. It felt real. I think a lot of people were tempted to, you know, kind of make fun of the character mm -hmm. or didn't know how to like, you know, make her feel authentic. But Christina, like every scene that we tried, it just felt real. And I started feeling bad for Sigma, which was, you know, <laughs> a great feeling mm -hmm. um, for me as the director of this. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was like, we searched high and low and, uh, and Christina came in and kind of saved the day and made it all possible. And how was it with the makeup? How long was she, was she in the makeup chair every day? Uh, I mean, it's so the, Oh, sorry, but there's various stages. Yeah. So there's various stages. So, so like, um, we, we started giving them names at a certain point to kind of, uh, distinguish between them and, um, the uh, the um we had like the main stage the stage that is like her desired appearance the the stage that that uh leads to a modeling career we call that mm -hmm. the beautiful stage um and uh so it was like pre beautiful stage and then it was beautiful stage and then i think it was just uh the uh 
Oh, and then there's one uh, little moment that we call the swollen stage. And it's when she like ODs on all those uh, pills. Uh, and then there was the post beautiful stage. And then it was like the final form. Um, and the, the one that took longest was the post beautiful stage, which is, um, you know, when she shows up for her first modeling gig yeah. and it's grown even worse. That took around seven hours. That was like a very long process. Um, and then the beautiful stage, which is like most of the, that stage was applied on like half the days. That was around three hours. So it was a little bit lighter and a little bit more um, achievable with our days. Um, and then like there is like half of the movie, there is no prosthetics. Mm-hmm. Um so, it, but it became a real headache and a puzzle to figure out how to shoot this movie, um, because usually you just map it out according to locations and availability of actors. And but this one, you also had like, oh no, we can't shoot that part of the script because she's supposed to be in the post beautiful stage, or she's, you know, and we couldn't mix them because we suddenly had to take a seven hour break if we wanted to shoot two different parts of a right. Um, so what did you do? Go sequential? No, we, we shot out of order, but we just tried to group in the, uh, the makeup stages. We had to do like this day is like with the stage. Um, but, but it was like impossible. Like there's one location that we shoot twice. It's a restaurant. And, um, it was important that it was the same restaurant. Cause it's like, uh, the power balance has shifted in the relationship and i wanted to shoot at the same place but put the characters just in the opposite chairs um and so that was like with no makeup and then we had lunch and three hour break putting her in makeup and then continuing the scene so we just had to like wait around for the prosthetics to be applied on some of the days um and um it was like extremely um you know demanding for christina to the point where i'm i'm pretty sure she'll say no or at least be very hesitant if another like big prosthetics gig lands in her lap (laughs) and one of the things that was so striking when i saw your movie at the london film festival um when i want to see a movie i won't watch the trailer i won't read anything about it and the only thing I had heard from my friends is, oh, people have been walking out. This film is so extreme. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. take, take my money. And then when it, when it started, your cinematography is so beautiful. And it, it, was, it was very much, it was not what I was expecting when I, when I'd heard all the kind of crazy sound bites about your film, Yeah, but your visual language and your cinematography, I'm like, this looks like a seventies Gordon Willis shot movie. Wow. Thank you that that balance is so yeah such an incredible feat that you're balancing really grotesque stuff hideous behavior but it's shot like a dream yeah it's like um i think tom waits has this quote of uh i like when beautiful melodies tells me terrible things uh which is kind of the same thing and like a beautiful movie showing you terrible things yes um and um yeah that was important to me like i do just genuinely love um cinematography and i'm you know really interested in just 
lighting and film and um and that's an important aspect of me for me so um but w with this movie it became even more important i thought to balance the grotesqueness like i wanted it to be a like a, a destination you wanted to visit not like a, a place you wanted to escape once you saw it um so um yeah that was part of the balancing of of grotesque nature of you know some of the visual uh elements in the movie was just to try to capture it as beautifully as possible. Um, and the same kind of balance is made with, uh, you know, a story that is about young people living today and it's about narcissism and it's about validation and attention and wanting to be the main character. Uh, and of course, like uh, the easy thing to do would be to, shoot a lot of phones and screens and the internet and view counts going up and but like i didn't think that the internet was an interesting place to go not to you know not for a diagnosis or mm -hmm. visually either it's like um that these are like timeless issues um you know the munchausen syndrome was a you know an idea or a term that um was coined in the 50s and um there's you know like forever people have wanted validation and attention and um narcissism is nothing new um and so i wanted to avoid connecting all of this to the digital world the screens and everything and i think just like it became um an interesting way to shoot the kind of general disease of our times uh, to manifestly to, to, to physically manifest it on someone's body, which wasn't like part of the idea. As I said, like the idea just started with an image in my head, but my, in retrospect, it's like, it's kind of the best way to, to do this. It's a uh, psychosomatization of like our inner inner battles that a lot of us are you know dealing with right now and where are you on your new movie is it in the can are you editing or yeah i'm editing it's uh it was shot um last fall um and i've been editing ever since it's uh, coming together like i'm in what feels like the final stages of the editing um and yeah it's my first american movie it's with uh, a great company a24 uh and nick cage plays the lead um alongside like a a great uh ensemble cast so it, that was like a real dream come true which is like uh um the puns uh, keep haunting me. The title is Dream Scenario. And of course, it was a dream scenario to make the movie. <laughs> and what, what did you learn from Ari as a producer? Did you glean any gems of knowledge from him? Just like um, a kind of a confidence in staying true to your vision. Yeah, I think he's been good at protecting me in that way. Yeah. Of, of like finding the, the quality of my screenwriting and, and in my directing and, and not feeling that I should change, you know, for 
the market or anything. And, um, and in, in that way, he's been like a really great voice of reason for the arts. Are there any other directors or emerging filmmakers you've discovered that you've enjoyed? Or have you seen anything good recently? Oh, my God. Um, yes. But when you're asking me, like, um, just like a blanket wraps around my head and I can't think of anything. Yeah, um, I, I shouldn't focus people because I always get... <laughs> people at my events like you program movies what have you watched recently and i'm like uh white chicks i don't know i just yeah i just always <laughs> yeah the minute i leave i i realize all the good smart shit i've seen of uh new exciting new york independent directors i should be name checking but at the time i always yeah i wish i had like uh some great uh bits for you here uh what have i been watching i mean i I'm watching The Kingdom over again, the Lars von Trier, and I yeah. watched like uh, uh, Dancer in the Dark last night. I mean, I, I feel like I'm back on a Lars von Trier kind of trip. Uh, as I said, like I've seen a lot of his films, but half of it I saw before I like came online or came like yeah. to full kind of cognition uh, of, of what a movie is and, and the complexity of them. And um, I'm just like uh, finding great joy in rewatching his uh, his old stuff. Yeah, I spoke to Mia Goff, so I rewatched *Nymphomaniac* parts one and two. Which, yeah, looking back, it feels like Lars' greatest hits in the best way possible. Yeah, and also I'll tell you something that I was that's been driving me insane about *Nymphomaniac*, especially is I cannot place the time or era in that movie. Yeah. He's yeah. really throws you off with, there's some classic cars. Um, I think Stacey Martin has like a old um, voicemail on her phone. She's, yeah. she's got like an answering machine. That, that's what they were called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And things like it, that. It's, there's like anachronism in time and geographics. He's, yes. You know, mo- mostly... Sh- bringing people to scandinavia and inventing mostly like an american landscape like a vague uh you know vague somewhere usa yeah um and it is i find it so interesting to see that um i think that he's coming to writing from what feels like a place of um historical lens uh like i I feel like a lot of uh um chekhov or something Mm. in like uh in breaking the waves or dancer in the dark um or or dogville it's it's this like way of writing that doesn't seem very personal to a guy who's you know from our times and lives in copenhagen denmark uh, it feels strange, like uh, not writing from what you know, but more like what you like or something like um, um, more of a God's eye on what stories can I tell? Um, and it's almost like you have to see his movies uh, a bit with like, there's a bit of an ironic flair to them. Like, mm-hmm. um, how how 
bad the world is around his women and and like uh um yeah like dancer in the dark uh the world is so evil and she is you know if you're talking about uh writing and like uh the tropes of writing the save the cat of making your uh character make sure that your audience is rooting for that person yes by like showing like unselfish uh behavior mm-hmm. like he, he's putting that so far like the sentimentality and the melodrama is like how is he getting away with it i yeah. don't know it's like <laughs> it's crazy to me um and, and uh, also like it's interesting to see like i recognize sweden or i recognize denmark and then i see like uh american and french and and british people all talking mm-hmm. with their accents but they're all living in this like small town community working at this like strange factory or something it's hugely fascinating the the level of artifice uh artifice but then real emotions and like where he decides to be human and real and where he decides to like this is complete like uh artifice and tools uh, of manipulation um and it's difficult to see because i'm like i'm fully in tears watching uh dancer in the dark and i kind of have the sense that lars is like laughing at me for for crying <laughs> um, yeah his set yeah. design and costume all deserve more credit i think it seems no it's not something we hear spoke about well his films are so sensational that it almost gets Lost in the press. Melancholia is my favorite. Melancholia is is to me also like where a lot of the elements just come together in this beautiful way where it's where it's also like somewhat of what I like about a mm-hmm. big American movie is yeah. also in there. And it, it has like everything. Um yeah, it's um love that movie. Yeah. Best on screen representation of depression I've ever seen. I'm like Okay, these guys yeah. get it. <laughs> these guys have yeah. been through it and, and you can feel it. And that we know is coming from a personal place. If we're talking about write, writing what you know, then you know, watch one interview with the guy. and He's pretty much like a, a mirror of that character. Absolutely, yeah. I really appreciate your time and your film's incredible. You should be proud. Well, this was uh, really great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Cool. Uh, maybe we'll do do another one with the next movie. Oh, please, anytime. Yeah, let's definitely come back for the next one. All right, great. Well, have a good one. Best of luck finishing your movie. Thank you. All right, speak soon. Take care. Bye. That is me and Chris in conversation. That guy is so smart and so interesting and doing something really unique. I can't wait to see his next movie. That is it from me. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Joshua Eustace, a.k.a. Telephone Tel Aviv, for our beautiful music. And we will speak soon.